chapter 7, verses 14 to 36. It's page 795 in your pew Bible. Would you please stand out of honor for the word of the Lord? John 7, 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. The chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I, come, where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever been misjudged? I'm sure that most of us would answer yes to that question. But I want to be careful, I'm not talking here about when you sin and somebody calls you out on it. If a brother or sister comes to you lovingly and prayerfully challenging you about your sin, they're actually doing the most loving thing that they can. But I'm also not talking about saying the wrong things in the wrong way. You can be completely right and completely wrong. I remember a number of years ago challenging a brother who was, was in sin, and, and when I came to him, I was correct in my assessment of what he was doing, but completely wrong in the way that I approached him, and I, and I know that I've done that since. 
But by God's grace, I'm being changed and learning the wisdom of, of dealing with problems in the right way. What I'm talking about when I say being misjudged, I'm talking about when you do the right thing, when you are seeking to obey God, but people judge you for it. When you are seeking to obey God and people condemn you. You try to help somebody financially and you're accused of looking down on them. You innocently say something to someone and you're accused of being hurtful. You share the gospel with someone and are accused of narrow-mindedness. You speak up about a moral issue and are accused of bigotry. It doesn't feel very nice, does it? But take heart. If you as a Christian have been misjudged in this way, you are in good company. Our Lord and Savior was misjudged throughout his earthly ministry. This is a common theme in John's Gospel. We saw it a couple of weeks ago in John 12, where Jesus was accused of deceiving the people. And they'll call him a deceiver again in verse 47. In our passage this morning, they will accuse him of being demon-possessed. They'll do that again in John 8, 48 and John 10, 20. He's also accused of breaking the Sabbath in John 5, 16, 18 and 9, 16, of blasphemy in John 5, 18, 8, 59, 10, 31, 33, 39 and 19, 7, of being a Samaritan, John 8, 48, of insanity, John 10, 41, and of criminal activity, 1830. Misjudge, misjudge, misjudge. They will misjudge Jesus all the way to the cross. But at the same time, there were those who believed in him. They did not go with the majority position. They saw what Jesus was doing. They heard his words. The Holy Spirit was at work in their hearts. And they knew that there was something to his claims. And I pray that that would be an accurate description of those who are here listening this morning. As we study these events that took place 2,000 years ago and were written down almost that long ago. Remember that this is why John wrote his gospel account. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So some people are for Jesus, but the majority are against him. As usual, there is a division of opinion as to who Jesus really is. So we saw a couple of weeks ago how there was a division about Jesus at the feast. Some people muttered about him, saying he is a good man, and others said, no, he is leading the people astray. But they didn't speak openly about him because they were afraid of the response of the Jews. Now, opinions about Jesus continue to polarize people to this day, and we shouldn't be surprised at this. Jesus said that he did not come to bring peace, but a sword, and that the division that Jesus brings would divide even families. So here in this passage, the division and rejection of Jesus continued. And there are several people that are represented here, and almost all of them misjudged, misjudged and rejected him. 
Jerusalem was crowded with people because this was, if you remember, the, the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Ingathering. It was a celebration of what God had done in protecting and preserving his people in the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. First, in verses 14 to 24, we're going to see that the Jews were misjudging Jesus' teaching and actions. Second, in verses 25 to 31, we're going to see that the crowds were misjudging Jesus' identity and origin. And then third, in verses 32 to 36, we're going to see that the Pharisees were misjudging Jesus' purpose and destination. This misjudgment was going on because they were judging by the wrong standard. The only ones who really know who Jesus is are those who are submitted to God's will. And the only ones who are submitted to God's will are those who are submitted to God's word. Let me say that again. The only ones who really know who Jesus is are those who are submitted to God's will. And the only ones who will be submitted to God's will are those who are submitted to God's word. And you'll see what I mean as I go on this morning. But brothers and sisters, if you are submitted to God's will and God's word, you will also be misjudged. If people misjudge Jesus in these areas, they will misjudge us as well. So first of all, in verses 1 to 24, this is where I'm going to spend most of my time, the Jews misjudge Jesus' teaching and actions. The Jews misjudge Jesus' teaching and actions. Around the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. Remember that the Temple Mount was crowded. There was pilgrims from all over. Jewish males were commanded to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, and many had come to the Temple in Jerusalem at this time. Now, we don't know what it was that Jesus taught, but the Jews were incredulous. Later, we're going to see that when, Jesus, when John refers to the, to the Jews, he is including the assembled crowds, but most often when he refers to the Jews, he is referring to the scribes and the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders. And it's likely them who are speaking here. They are shocked. How could Jesus, who had no formal training, be so learned? The Greek says, how could he know his letters? They were wondering, how could you teach God's word when you have not been trained by any of the predominant rabbis? They're wondering, how could you presume to teach us? They were questioning Jesus' authority to teach. They misjudged his teaching because they were jealous of him. They were trying to belittle him by pointing out the fact that he didn't have any formal training. Now think about this for a second. They were questioning how the Logos, the eternal word become flesh, could teach them. They were thinking the audacity. But it is they who are demonstrating the utmost audacity. 
Jesus had already given a glimpse of his authority in teaching when he opened the scrolls and, 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 and interacted with the teachers when he was only 12 years old. If anyone had authority to proclaim God's word, it was Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God. But nonetheless, he answers them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Now, rabbinic authorities, would, rabbinic teaching and tradition held that in order to validate the authority of one's position, one must appeal to earlier rabbinic judgments. So they would never make a statement saying, I say this. They would appeal to the rabbi Hillel or the rabbi Gamaliel as their authority. Now, the Roman Catholic Church follows this sort of teaching when it appeals to documents like the Council of Trent or Vatican I or Vatican II or other papal announcements. Sadly, many evangelicals do the same thing when they appeal to popular evangelical leaders as though their word is an authority. As though when so-and-so says such-and-such, because of who they are, we need to esteem their opinion as being of higher value. Now, we should esteem those that the Lord has given as gifts to the church. We should esteem men who faithfully go to God's Word and study God's Word and set God's Word as their authority. But notice what I said there. It's God's Word that's the authority, not any teacher, not a teacher that you hear on the internet or watch on TV, not the teacher who is standing here before you. Yes, I have been called of God to lead this church at this time, but I am not your ultimate authority. God's Word is your authority, and if I say something that does not line up with God's word, you are commanded to go to me and approach me about it. And if I persist in holding a wrong view, then you need to go to the leadership of the church about it. And if I still persist, I need to be removed from this office. I am not your authority. God's word is your authority. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, is our authority. So we esteem church leaders because we're commanded to do this, but we'd never esteem church leaders or anyone above God's holy word. The rabbis might have had to appeal to other authorities, but of course Jesus, the Logos of God, could appeal to the ultimate authority. Jesus didn't have to appeal to any human teacher. His teaching came directly from the Heavenly Father. As God the Son, He had ultimate authority, an authority that He shared with His Father. Earlier prophets could declare, Thus saith the Lord. But whenever Jesus said anything, it was thus saith the Lord. But I need to make an important point here. We must remember that it is also true that Jesus in his humanity had to learn these things. 
Jesus was fully man and fully God. We mustn't ever let his divinity overshadow his humanity or his humanity overshadow his divinity. He was totally God and totally man. So Jesus here, even though he had all of the divine attributes of God, he had the limitations of man. So he appeals to the authority of the Father. He continues in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Again, it is only those who are submitted to God's will who will really know who Jesus is. The Jews misjudged Jesus because they weren't really seeking God's will. They claim to do so. They, can't, they claim to be representatives of God. They're speaking with the Pharisees here. They claim to be the ones that would, would mediate God's word for God's people, but their hearts were never after God. It's a matter of faith, and they didn't have it. So in verse 18, Jesus continues, The one who speaks of his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus wasn't seeking his own glory, but that of the Father. How different is that from people who want to be the authority on any given subject? It's the epitome of pride. We want everyone to see how much we know. I've been too, part of too many conversations like this when, when each person isn't really concerned about what the other person is saying, let alone what God's Word has to say, but is only acting on their own opinion. They aren't concern, concerned about the truth for the glory of God, but of truth for the glory of self. Again, you can be 100% right and 100% wrong. It's the academic equivalent of men pumped up on steroids trying to outflex each other in the gym. It's gross to those who are looking on. But then in verse 19, Jesus expands on the ethical component. He appeals to the Mosaic law, telling them that none of them keep the law. As evidence against them, he asks, why do you seek to kill me? Now the crowds answer, you have a demon. This is unfathomable. Accusing the holy God the Son of being demon-possessed. This is going to happen again. And they ask, who is seeking to kill you? Now, perhaps this response came from the majority who at this point didn't know what the religious leaders were plotting. Or some of the leaders themselves were really trying to, to hide their schemes because they weren't ready to act on them. After all, if they, if they deflect this and saying, who is trying to kill you? They're not really denying it. They're not really lying. But their hearts were lying. They were far from God. Either way, Jesus cuts to the point. He knows what instigated this. Remember back in John chapter 5 when Jesus healed the invalid at Bethesda pool and told him to take up his bed and walk. Jesus did so on the Sabbath, breaking the Pharisees' man-made law about not carrying a load longer than a certain distance. 
Jesus did that on purpose. He was intentionally drawing himself into conflict with the Pharisees and their false religion. And it was at that point that the disdain of Jesus moved from moved into actual desires to kill him. The thoughts were crystallized in their minds. We need to kill this guy. We need to kill this guy. So Jesus says to them, I did one work, and you marvel at it. And he explains that Jesus gave them circumcision. Now he means here that, that Moses, it was actually... Abraham that the covenant was made with, the covenant of circumcision in Genesis 16, but it was Moses who wrote down the law. He wrote down the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The covenant with Abraham had been given 500 years earlier. But what Jesus is saying is that the ceremonial law prescribed that a male baby be circumcised on the eighth day after birth. Now, the child would be circumcised on the eighth day, even if that fell on the Sabbath. So the law of Moses was fulfilled. So here they could circumcise a baby on the Sabbath and not break the Sabbath. So they misjudged Jesus. Again, they were judging by the wrong standards. If, G- if they could heal, if they could circumcise a baby on the eighth day on the Sabbath and not break the Sabbath, surely God the Son could heal a man on the Sabbath and not break the Sabbath. They completely misunderstood what the Sabbath was all about. They were misjudging Jesus according to the Mishnah, their law, not God's law. Jesus was arguing here from the lesser to the greater. If a Pharisee or a priest could could circumcise someone on the Sabbath, surely Jesus, God the Son, could heal a whole body on the Sabbath. So Jesus was demonstrating the truth of his statement in Mark 2.27. The Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But the Jews couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. It was right there in front of them. The teaching that Jesus gave them was watertight. There were no gaps. There were no holes in what he was teaching. It was completely logical, but they rejected it. It was simple, but they rejected it. They rejected the simple message of the cross for a whole system of thousands of rules and regulations that they thought that they could keep in their own strength. And they missed the point that true religion, true faith in Christ is what matters. That if you want to worship God, it is not about a series of external do this and do that rules. It's about worship that comes from the heart. So Jesus said to them, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So how can we judge rightly? 
We've already seen that it's only those who are submitted to God's will who will judge rightly. It is only those who are submitted to God's will who would judge rightly about Jesus. It is only those who are submitted to God's will that would judge rightly about anything. But the only way that you can know God's will is by knowing God's word. So let me put those two statements together as I did in the introduction. The only ones who will really know who Jesus is are those who are submitted to God's will. And the only ones who are submitted to God's will are those who are submitted to God's word. Not just the parts of God's word that you find comfortable. Not just the, the parts of God's word that the, that the world likes. You hear scripture quoted and well, misquoted and quoted out of context all over the place in our culture. But it's God's word from Genesis to Revelation, from Genesis 1 to Revelation. So are you someone who is submitted to God's will and someone who is submitted to God's word? If so, you will be different from the world. You will be hated often by the world as you are misjudged by the world. In Acts chapter 4, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, after the empowering of the Holy Spirit, Peter and John would similarly shock the religious authorities when they preached the gospel to them and declare in verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among which, sorry, given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13 reads, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Do people recognize that you have been with Jesus? Do they recognize that you spend time with Jesus in his word and in prayer? If so, you have an authority to teach in the sphere in which the Lord sends you. Formal education does not give you the authority to teach. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with it. Just like going to college and learning to be a mechanic doesn't necessarily make you a good mechanic. Or getting your papers doesn't necessarily make you a good carpenter. You can do all the schooling you want. You can do all the seminary you want, but that won't make you a good teacher. A good teacher is someone who is submitted to God's will and submitted to God's word. Now, of course, I'm, I'm very thankful for my seminary education, but I know plenty of men who achieved success in seminary or Bible college but have no authority to teach. The authority to teach does not just come from having right doctrine, but from having a righteous life. 1 Timothy 4 says, six, sorry, 1 Timothy 4.16 says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. It's got to be both, a submission to God's will and a submission to God's word. 
In verses 25 to 31, we see how the people misjudge Jesus' identity and origin. The people misjudge Jesus' identity and origin. Now, some of the people of Jerusalem were obviously aware of the plots of the Jewish authorities because they said in verse 25, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And now here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Notice that they're referring to him as just the man. They were incredulous that he could speak so boldly against the religious leadership, and they did nothing. These are the same people who could cast you out of the synagogue. They did, this, they did that in, well, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, they, did that, they do that in John chapter 9 with the man who was born blind, who was healed by Jesus. So here was Jesus teaching against the religious authorities, and they did nothing. And so the people thought, well, hang on a second. Something's wrong here. They had a fleeting thought. Could this actually be the Christ? But it's a fleeting thought. It's plucked away just as the birds pluck away the seed that is sown sown on the wayside. They disregard it immediately. So they disregard the possibility. They say, we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Again, they referred to him as just a man. They misjudged his identity. These things happened to reveal the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, but the people missed it because they were judging by the wrong standards. They were not judging with right judgment. In their sinful flesh, they were judging according to appearances but they also misjudged his origin. They believed that no one would know the origin of Christ. Now, they probably held to the popular view that, as as D.R.A. Carson explains, that the Messiah would be born of flesh and blood, yet would be wholly unknown until he appeared to affect Israel's redemption. So there was a rabbinic tradition that that the Messiah would would be not known by anyone until he actually came to to do the work of redemption. And this is actually what really happened. Jesus really had come to effect redemption, but they missed it because they were judging according to the flesh. But how they actually interpreted this this tradition is really strange because just in a few verses later, we'll see that it's common knowledge that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Look down at verses 41 and 42. Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Even though Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Jesus was considered to be from Nazareth. Because that's where Joseph, his adopted father, was from. And that's where he had returned after fleeing to Egypt from Herod. But again, they were judging by appearances, not right judgment. We don't know why, but but people from Nazareth were scorned. Remember in John chapter 1, when Philip told Nathanael, We have found him of whom Moses and and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
And Nathanael responded, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So the people thought, How could, how could the Messiah come from Nazareth? From this, this podunk little town. They were judging by appearances. They missed the significance of Nazareth, and immeasurably more so, they missed the significance of the Messiah. But even the people of Nazareth misjudged his origins. When they questioned Jesus' identity in Matthew 13.55, they asked, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not his sisters with us? Constantly, they misunderstood Jesus' origins. They misjudged him and missed the fact that he was truly the Son of God. Then in verses 28 and 29 of, our, of John chapter 7, as Jesus taught in the temple, he responded to them, and he literally cried out, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So Jesus is saying here, You think you know me? You think you know where I come from? You have no idea who I am. You have no idea where I come from. I've been sent by my Father. He is true. I know him, but you don't know him. You don't know him. You're not submitted to him. You don't love him. You don't worship him. The response to this couldn't have been more polarized. One group sought to arrest him. Now, this is not a formal attempt like of the officers to arrest him, like we'll see down in verse 31, but this is an angry, angry mob trying to grab hold of him. But they didn't succeed. They didn't do it yet because his time had not yet come. His time would come, but there was plenty that he had to do and teach before that time. Nothing could thwart God's plan or God's timing of the events. So in contrast, there was those who sought to seize him, but there was another group who, John says, believed in him. He says that there were many people who believed in him, and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Do you see it again? This man has done. Now, we don't know the end result of their profession. There were many who believed in Jesus for a time, but walked away. So were they still judging by mere appearances like those who Jesus challenged in John 44, 48? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe? Or did they begin to understand that these events, that what Jesus said and what he did were actually fulfillments of messianic prophecy? Did they actually come to real saving faith in Christ? Now, we can't know for certain, but it seems likely that given the context that this was a false fleeting faith because the focus in these chapters is on the rejection of Jesus. But nonetheless, public opinion was sharply divided. And then finally, in verses 32 to 36, the Pharisees misjudged Jesus' purpose 
and destination. Like diligent security forces, the Pharisees were well attuned to the responses of the crowd. They heard the crowd muttering and sent officers to arrest him. They would have used the the temple guards, which they were Levites, and their role was to keep order in the temple area. But now the formal process against Jesus had begun and would culminate in his crucifixion just a few months later. Now, spoiler warning, we're going to see the result of this of this arrest warrant in verses 45 and following. We'll see that next week. But once again, nothing could thwart God's plan or God's timing. No arrest was made at this time. But Jesus responded to this development in verses 33 and 34. I will be with you a little longer. Then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me. You will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. His time had not yet come. He's going to be on the earth as long as he intends to be. Not a moment longer, not a moment less. And then he's going back to the Father. They could look for him, but they won't find him. Nor will they be able to go where he is gone. They will not be able to go to the Father because they are rejecting the Son and they are rejecting the Father. They have no faith in Christ. They have no love for the Father. They're not submitted to God's will. They're not submitted to God's word. They will die in their sins and face a Christless eternity. The Jews, once again, are judging by appearances. So they wonder what he means, and they ask, where does this man intend to go that will not find him? They also misjudge his destination. They misjudge his destination. Now, of course, it's obvious to those of us who have read God's word, we know what happens next. We know that Jesus will die on that cross, but we know that three days later, he rose from the grave and that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. So we know how the story finishes. We know that Jesus is headed straight for the cross, but we know that that is not his final destination. But beloved, we can only see that with the eyes of faith. We can only see that when we are submitted to God's will and to God's word. If you are not submitted to God's word in these things, How could you possibly believe in a resurrection? How? The human sinful flesh will never believe in these things because it is opposed to the Father and to the Son. But the Pharisees also misjudge his purpose. They say, does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach Greeks? Once again, they're judging by appearances. They didn't understand. Jesus would reach out to the Greeks later on in John chapter 12. And again, we who are looking at these events on the other side of the cross know that the message of Jesus would be proclaimed with powerful effect, not just 
to Greeks, but to the whole world, that in Jesus, all the nations of the world will be blessed. But at this point, those who are judging according to the appearances were judging with wrong judgment. That was true then, and it remains through today. True today. If you want to know who Jesus really is, you must be submitted to God's will and God's word. And if you are, you will be misjudged. They misjudge Jesus' teaching and his actions, his identity and his origin, his purpose and his destination, and they'll misjudge your teaching and actions. They'll say that you are being judgmental. They'll call you a legalist, a heretic. They'll misjudge your identity and origin. They'll say that you're deceived. They'll call you a fool. They'll misjudge your purpose and destination. They'll say you're being self-righteous, that you're being hateful, that you're using hate speech. They'll even say that you're headed to hell. It's astonishing, but even those in the church, and I mean here the, the small c church, those that claim to be in Christ but are not, they will say that you're headed to hell for believing these things, if they even believe in hell. If they misjudged and hated Jesus, they will misjudge and hate you. In Acts chapter 5, 41, after the ruling council beat the apostles and told them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Are you hated and misjudged for your faith in Christ? Then rejoice that you're counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Let's pray.